You are listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Brampton, Ontario. For more information about our church, please visit harvestbrampton.ca. that it's a privilege to call you Father because you sent your Son to suffer and die. And after he rose victorious, you sent your Spirit who dwells inside of us, who helps us in our weakness, who causes us to cry, Abba, Father, who draws us closer to you in prayer, interceding with words that are, that are even too deep, Lord, that, that are beyond words, Lord. And so, Father, I pray that you would help us right now as we open your word. God, we have sung your praise. We have listened to uh, uh, our choir worship you and praise you. And now, Lord, we want to hear your voice. I pray, Lord God, that you would speak with power and with clarity, God. I pray for strength and weakness, Lord. God, the messenger is weak. And so I pray, God, that the message would go out with great power. And Lord, we as hearers, we're weak as well, Lord. We're so prone to just think about this on an intellectual level or an emotional level and not let it get to the spiritual level, to get to our very heart, to our soul. So help us all in our weakness, Lord God, that you would do something supernatural as we're gathered in your name, as we have opened your word now. Move so powerfully, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Well, happy birthday, Harvest Bible Chapel. And um, so thankful for the opportunity to celebrate God's faithfulness to us over the last uh, eight years. Uh, You can open up your Bibles to Ephesians chapter three. If you don't have a Bible, our ushers can put one in your hand. They're coming up and down the aisle uh, right now. Eight years ago was our first uh, service, and it was from Ephesians chapter three, verses 20 Uh, to 21. That was the very first sermon given in the history of this uh, church. But it's interesting, before that great text in in verses 20 to 21, and we'll get there today, before that, there's a prayer. There's a prayer for the church. And that's what I want us to zero in on today, because really before our first Sunday eight years ago, going back nine years ago, there were prayer meetings that were happening in homes, prayer for this church. And we believe that this day, we believe that many of you, that that is an answer to God's prayer that we started praying nine years ago. And so we want to come back to, as we look back on God's faithfulness in the last eight years, as we look forward to all that we expect and hope and pray that he will do in the future, we want to come back to the centrality and the importance of prayer. I'm starting a series today called A House of Prayer. This is going to be a unique series. It's not going to go week to week, but at strategic times in the course of our calendar year, we're going to remind ourselves about the importance of prayer. And we're going to be holding an evening prayer meeting on the same night. So tonight, we're launching the House of Prayer sermon series. And, 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 and then tonight, we're having a prayer meeting at 7 o'clock at our ministry center. And what we're going to see from Ephesians 3 and this prayer that Paul prays, we're going to see a model for how we ought to pray for one another. Paul prays for the church at Ephesus so that we can see that as a, as a framework, almost as a script, as a layout for how we should be praying for the church in Brampton. Jesus said, um, 
My house shall be a house of prayer. He said that at that memorable moment where he saw all the money changers and the people selling animals for sacrifices and he turned over their tables and he drove out not just the animals, he drove out the money changers from that place and said, my house shall be called a house of prayer. And he was just quoting Isaiah 56 verse 7, which was talking about that, that temple, that place where God chose to dwell. It was intended to be a house of of prayer. And, and fast forward to the church at Ephesus. Ephesus was a place that had its own temple, the temple to Diana or to Artemis. In fact, when the Apostle Paul, who wrote the letter to the Ephesians, first visited there, there was a big riot because they thought that he was undermining Diana and, and, Art, and Artemis. And they started having this big riot saying, no, we want to worship Diana at Diana's temple. But many people chose to turn away from the false god Diana and believe in the, in, in the true God. But there were also Jewish believers uh, who, who longed to worship at the temple in Jerusalem. And then Paul so beautifully in Ephesians chapter 1 and Ephesians chapter 2 talks about the mercy and the grace of God saving us from our sins. And then he chooses, as this new church is coming together, people who used to worship at the temple of Diana, a false god, people who used to worship at the temple of the true God in Jerusalem, God was bringing them together and the image, the metaphor that he uses is a temple. That God has built his people from every tribe and tongue and nation. God has built Harvest Bible Chapel Brampton together. We are living stones and we are the temple of the living God. And what Jesus said about the temple of Jerusalem is true about us today. His house is supposed to be a house of prayer. And today we're going to see three ways that we can be praying for our church. That we would be a house of prayer. Take a look at verse 13. Uh, 14 of chapter 3 it says for this reason I bow my knees before the father for whom every family in heaven and earth is named he bows his knees before the father Jesus taught us to pray in Matthew 6 9 to begin our prayers by saying our father God wants to relate to us as a family member as a son or as a daughter Jesus told another parable about how earthly fathers when their son asks them for a piece of bread he doesn't give them a stone no earthly fathers know how to look after their children Jesus says how much more then does our heavenly father know how to look after us and then he calls God the father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. That word every, the, the Greek word is pasa. It, it, it refers to all. And if you look at the context here, every may not be the best way to translate that. I think that the New International Version and the King James Version, they, I believe they hit it right on the head when they translate it, from whom the whole family, all the family, God's not, God's not simply just the father, of, and the father of every individual family. That is true. But in the context here in Ephesians 3, he's talking about the family of God. The, the family that's on, in heaven and on earth. In, in, in heaven, that great cloud of witnesses. Those who believed in Jesus and have now gone to be with him. And those of us who are still here on earth. And then he begins verse 16 with the word that. And then the word that appears later in the middle of verse 17 and then the middle of verse 18. And 
those three that's really lay the structure for Paul's prayer. Those are the three prayer requests that he outlines for the church at Ephesus. Here's the first one. We must pray that God would strengthen us with his power. Paul's initial prayer for this church is that they would be strengthened with power. Take a look at verse 16. He says that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. He prays to the God who has riches, who has abundant glory, a God who has no shortage of power. Last night at our first Saturday night service, we were given sort of a, a living, real-time parable of the, the limitations of our power, uh, particularly of electricity and its power. While I was closing in prayer at the end of the service, before we were about to serve the last song, we heard this fizzle, this buzz, and this snap. And uh, the... Uh, the box back here, I call it Medusa because all of the wires sort of go into it. The box back here overheated because we're having such unseasonable weather right now and just kicked out. And so I started praying a little louder and then we concluded the service singing. It was a beautiful moment, just singing acoustically as the church all together. You see, there's a limit to the power in that box, as powerful as it is to, to make all of these speakers work. There's, there's a limit to the amount of electricity. It's, it's finite. But God's power never runs out. There's never a time where you're relying on God's power and you hear a fizzle and a buzz and a pop. He, he, is, he is supplying power for us through his abundant riches of glory. And notice where he wants the power to go. He says that you would be strengthened with power by his spirit in your inner being. We live in such a world that's obsessed with how things look on the outside. Measurable things. Things that we can, things that, 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 that we can count. He doesn't pray for power so that we would have more numbers or more programs. No, he prays on the invisible spiritual level that we would be strengthened in our inner being. That phrase there, inner being, is synonymous with other terms in the New Testament like our heart or our soul. He's praying for the church on a spiritual level. And, and this is what we need the strength to do. He says, pray for strength in our inner being, verse 17, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That's a little odd, isn't it? Paul's a Christian. He's praying for the Christians in Ephesus, and he's praying that the Christians would have Jesus dwell in their hearts. I mean, don't we believe that if you are a Christian, Christ already dwells in your heart? What is he, what is he getting at here? Well, the key is, is that word dwell. You see, dwell isn't just sort of taking up temporary Residence. It's not like, you know, you, you might live in a hotel for a night or two if you're on a, a trip with business. You might stay over at a friend's if you're visiting from out of town. But you don't dwell there. To, you dwell in one place, a place where you call home, a place where you feel comfortable. And what Paul is praying is that in our inner being, God, by his spirit, would do a work so that in our inner, that would be a place where Christ would feel at home, where, where our heart would truly be his heart. I remember when I was just seven or eight years old, I, I was at a summer camp and I saw a skit, like a dramatization 
or a play. And there was a narrator and he was reading from an old pamphlet called Christ at Home in My Heart. And the pamphlet was written by a guy named Robert Munger. It was written back in the 1950s. And as the the narrator describes, Jesus comes to live in his house. And Jesus goes from room to room and place to place. And it it starts with Jesus visiting the library, which was symbolic for the person's mind. And it was, you know, filled with books and there were pictures on the wall. And Jesus begins talking to the person, the homeowner, about, well, you know what, I don't think these books are really good for you to be reading. I don't think these thoughts are the kinds of thoughts you should be thinking. I don't think these pictures or these memories. I don't think that you should be dwelling on those things. And so then Jesus brings in new things to read and new pictures to look at. And then he he just goes, he flows from room to room. He goes to the dining room to make sure that he's feeding on the word of God and, and the living room and the rec room and then down to the work room to make sure that he's actually being productive in his life. And the story continues on until the day where Jesus is standing in front of a locked closet in the hallway. And there's a smell that's coming from the closet. There's something is rotting in there. And Jesus says, we need to go into this room. And the homeowner pleads with Jesus and says, no, we can't go in there. There are some things that I've been hiding. There are some things that I am ashamed of. There are some things that I'm not yet ready to let go of. And Jesus says, no, it has to go. Jesus says, I cannot live here with that here. And then the the homeowner bursts into tears, gets on his knees and says, I don't have the strength. And Jesus says, I have the strength. Give me the key to the door. And Jesus is able to do what that person could not do in his own strength. He goes into that closet and he cleanses it of all of its filth and everything that was, had rotten and all of the putrid items that were there. And then it's at that moment where the narrator turns and he says to Jesus, this is what he says. He says, Lord, you have been a guest and I have been the host. From now on, I'm going to be the servant. You are going to be the owner and master and Lord. And that is, a, that is a picture of what Paul is praying for the church at Ephesus. That Christ would dwell, that he would own our hearts. That he would be the master of our hearts and Lord of our hearts. And notice how the whole trinity is involved in the prayer. He bows his knees before the Father. He prays that we would be strengthened by the Spirit so that Christ would dwell in our hearts. So listen, loved ones, if we're going to grow as as people of prayer, individually and corporately, as the body of Christ, it starts with recognizing our own weakness, recognizing that we don't have the strength. Some people think that the people who have, have good prayer lives are the strong Christians. The kinds of people who come to prayer meetings are the strong Christians. Nuh-uh, that's not true. The people that come to prayer meetings, the people that have vibrant prayer lives are people who are forever conscious of their own weakness of their own inability to live the Christian life on their own, of their need of the Father to send the Spirit so that Christ could truly rule from their new regenerate heart. And so what are we supposed to do with this power? If God gives us the power, if Christ dwells in us, is the power reflected in physical stamina so that we can volunteer more at the church? 
Is, is, does the power mean that we're able to do signs and wonders to, to impress uh, unbelievers? Is the power somehow intellectual so that we can go to the universities and reason with the skeptics and pick apart their arguments? No, that's not the, the purpose of the power. If you keep reading in his prayer, verse 17, he says, So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. This is the second thing he prays for. He prays that we would have power so that God would overwhelm us with his love. He prays for the church at Ephesus that the church there would be overwhelmed, that they would come to know how unknowable Christ's love is for us. And that's what we are called upon to pray for our church, that we would know God's love for us. He begins by saying that we would be rooted and grounded in love. Rooted there, that's an agricultural metaphor. Grounded, that's an architectural metaphor. So love is the soil in which the church's roots grow. It's an organic agricultural metaphor. But if, if he only used soil as the metaphor, soil, you can pick soil up and it can move elsewhere. You can shovel it away into a wheelbarrow or into a dump truck. There, there could have been soil there, but the soil could disappear. Water could cause soil to erode and to wash away. So it's not just soil where roots grow. He mixes his metaphors. He calls it a rock on which the foundation is built. And, the, and God's love for us is not something that could be picked up and taken away. No, our roots grow in something that is loving and that is nurturing and that is tender. But at the same time, it's a rock-solid reality based on the truth of who Jesus is. So Paul prays that we would be rooted and grounded in love. And then he says that, that we may have strength in verse 18 to comprehend with all the saints. To be overwhelmed with the love of God is not something you can do on your own. The lesson of the limitless love of God is not a class that you can take by correspondence. You can only learn this lesson in the classroom with classmates, fellow Christians, fellow brothers and sisters, members of the family of God. If you try to live your Christian life on your own in isolation, you are cutting yourself off from understanding and embracing and enjoying the limitless love that God has for you. It's to happen together with the saints. And then he talks about the love of God and its limitless nature. He says to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. It's so high, it's so deep, it's so wide, it's so broad. On our wedding day, one of the hymns that Lindsay and I chose to be sung was the love of God. This is the, these are the lyrics to the song. The love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell. The guilty pair bowed down with care God gave his son to win. 
His erring child, he reconciled and pardoned from his sin. Oh, love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong. It shall forevermore endure the saints and angels' song. Could we with ink the ocean fill? And were the skies of parchment made, were every stalk on earth a quill, and every man a scribe by trade, to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry. Nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. You see, Lindsay and I knew that in our, there was no hope for the love within our marriage unless it was rooted and grounded in the limitless love of God. We also knew that God was going to do something beautiful in that as our hearts were going to be united together in love, as we drew closer to one another, that was going to cause us not only just to draw close to each other, but to draw closer to God. And loved ones, we are called upon as a church to come together, to love one another, to pray for one another so that we would be closer to each other and as a result, closer to God. But what does he mean when he talks about the breadth and the, the length and the, the depth and, and the height? Listen to how John Stott summarizes this. He says, the love of Christ is broad enough to encompass all mankind long enough to last for eternity, deep enough to reach the most degraded sinner, and high enough to exalt him to heaven. The breadth of God's love is evident when you look around this room, all the different nations and cultures and languages that are represented here. God's love knows no boundary as far as a race. God's love knows no boundary as far as geography or as far as culture or as far as language. It is endless. It is infinitely broad. And loved ones, it's also infinitely long. God has chosen you, chosen you, and chosen to love you at this moment, at this point in time, and he will continue loving you for all of eternity. And loved ones, God's love is deep. It's deep enough to reach the most degraded of sinners. You might think that you've fallen away and you've fallen too far you've dug yourself into a hole the pit is too deep God said my arm is not too short to save you and his love is never beyond the reach of of a sinner and you might feel like you've gone too far you haven't gone too far he loves you and he wants to reach down and his love is reaching to you right now in the place where you're at. And it's not just the depth, but also the height. He wants to take you from where you are and he wants to lift you up and he wants to take you to be with him forever. That is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth of the love of Christ. That's what Paul prays for the church, that they would know that. Verse 18 uses the word comprehend. And then in verse 19, he says that you would know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you would know it, but that you would also, in your knowing, you would also understand that it's unknowable. Jesus loves me, this I know. Do you know? Do you know? Because it's unknowable. Can we really truly sing that song? I say, yes, you can. 
Because even Jesus says, if we have faith like a child, we will enter the kingdom of heaven. So yes, we can know that Jesus loves us because the Bible has told us so. But loved ones, the further you journey with Jesus, whether you came to know him when you were 6 or 16 or 66, as you continue to journey, yes, you know that God loves you, but you continue to realize that all that you know is just some little tiny microscopic picture of, of an atom and placed in the vast universe, the entire cosmos of God's love, that we could know his love. But it's really just the beginning to know something that which is unknowable. Paul mentions the incredible nature of God's love in the book of Ephesians. In chapter 1, he can hardly wait to talk about it. Look at chapter 1, verse 4 in the book of uh, Ephesians. Talking about the love of God, he says, Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him, starting a new sentence at the end of verse 4 and beginning verse 5, in love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. It was his love in which he caused him to plan ahead, to predestine to choose us before the foundation of the world. That's how long his love is. It goes to eternity past and it will stretch on to eternity future. In love he predestined us. Look at what else it says, that we would be adopted. That's why we can call God our father. He, he doesn't simply want to relate to us as, as creator and creature. No, he wants to go beyond that. He wants to relate to us as father with son and father with daughter. He wants to write us into the will and give us an inheritance, the inheritance that belongs to his son, Jesus Christ. Amen. That's worth clapping for. Amen. This is the incredible love of God. I'll give you another great opportunity to clap. Look at chapter 2 and verse 4. This is the incredible love of God. But God being rich in mercy... Because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. The reason why God chose us, the reason why God saved us, the reason why God adopted us was so that was all because of his love. He wanted to shower his love on us. The surprising thing about this prayer for me this week as I studied it was this is not a prayer that the Ephesians would love God more. I mean, that, that's, a, that's, that's a prayer request that we ask people to pray. You know, pray that I would love God more. You know, I'm struggling with sin and I'm kind of apathetic in my faith. Would you just pray that I'd have a greater love for God? I want to fulfill the great commandment. I want to love the Lord God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. Would you pray that I would love God more? That's a great prayer request. But Paul prays for something very different. He prays not that they would love God more, but they would have a greater understanding of what it means for God to love them. Because that's the only way where we're going to grow in our love for him. If we could look to God and look to his love and say, oh, how glorious, oh, how wonderful is the Savior's love for me. And so that's what he prays for. That's what he's going after, that they would have a better understanding of how much God loves them. It seems kind of selfish, doesn't it? Pray that I'd know that God loves me more. You're sort of like writing that on the connection card, you're making sure no one can see, because it's, it seems kind of selfish. Shouldn't I be praying that I'd love my neighbor? Shouldn't I be praying that I'd love God? Well, all of that flows 
from knowing first and foremost how much God loves you. Paul knew that. And that's why Paul prayed that. And we need to pray as a church that we would be overwhelmed by a sense of God's love. We so often undervalue, underestimate, miscalculate, and underappreciate God's incredible love for us. This is why we need strength, loved ones. We need strength to comprehend the love that God has for us. Here, here's why. Because we need strength because we have a strong enemy. Look at Ephesians chapter 4, verse 27. He says, And give no opportunity to the devil. Give no foothold to the devil. That's a, talking about a strategic military position. Don't allow things to come into your life. The context there is anger. Don't allow it to come into your life in such a way where Satan has a chance to attack you. We have a strong enemy. That's why we need strength to contemplate the love of God. Look at verse 11 and 12. It says, oh, sorry, chapter 6, verse 11 and 12. It says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Loved ones, you need to understand this. We need strength to contemplate God's love because we have a strong foe. We have an enemy, he has an army, and we are called upon to fight. But this is something that we so often misunderstand about the nature of spiritual warfare. What is spiritual warfare? How is it fought? We need to understand that Satan, the war that he wages, it's not flesh and blood. It's in the spirit realm, and we need to understand that his main tactic is propaganda, fake news, telling lies that aren't true. And what's his number one lie? What's the thing that he's always trying to convince us of and trick us into believing? Do you know what it is? It's this, God doesn't really love you. Look what just happened to you. Look at this circumstance. Look at this health crisis you're going through. Look at the financial situation you find yourself in. It's in God can't love you. Why would he allow that to happen if he loved you? Look what you just did. Look what you just said. Look what you just thought. God can't love you. Look how sinful you are. He causes us to look at our circumstances. He causes us to feel condemned as it relates to our sin. And he concludes through the warfare of propaganda, trying to destroy the morale of God's army, telling us God must not love you. And this is the thing that we need to watch out for, is within our flesh there is also this inner Pharisee, this bean-counting, um, 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 spice-tithing legalist. That is, that is trying to tell us that we need to earn our favor with God. That grace is not enough and grace isn't that amazing. And God doesn't really love us. We need to earn our way. So we've got, this, we've got, we've got the deceiver, Satan, trying to convince us that God doesn't love us. There's something in our flesh that agrees with that, our own legalistic tendencies. And we fight spiritual warfare by praying after the whole armor of God goes on, taking on the sword of the Spirit, you get to verse 18, it says, praying at all times. This is how we fight. And what do we pray for? We pray that God would remind us and would reveal to us the depth 
and the breadth and the height and the width of his love for us. Loved ones, that's what it's all about. That's what we're gathering to pray about tonight, that we would be strengthened with God's power, that we would know and be absolutely overwhelmed by the love of God for us. And then at the end of verse 19, here's the third that, the third prayer request that he gives, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. He prays that God would fill us with his fullness. Fill us with his fullness. Strengthen us with his power so that we would be overwhelmed with his love and that we would be filled with his fullness. Kent Hughes talks about being filled with the fullness like going over to the Pacific Ocean with a mason jar and no lid and you plunge that jar into the, the depths of the ocean and as the jar fills with, fills with water, it is filled with the fullness of the Pacific Ocean. Now, the, the Pacific Ocean is not contained in that jar because it's, 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 it's seemingly limitless. But at that moment, that jar, there's no space, there's nothing else in it it is filled with the fullness of God. And this is a picture of Christian maturity. Someone who doesn't have any area of their jar that's not filled with the fullness of God. That there's no compartmentalization of their life saying that God is welcome here, but he's not welcome here. That in his work and in his family and in his relationships and in his finances, that in all of these things that that person is completely filled with the fullness of God. That Christ is dwelling in that heart and as he is ruling that new and regenerate heart, it is flowing into God's fullness being in every area of that individual's life. And it's true for the individual, it's also true for the church. That every person in the church and every program in the church and every ministry and every, every pastor and every leader, that we would be filled with the fullness of God. So Ephesians chapter 3 paints a very surprising picture for us of Christian maturity. When we think about mature Christians, normally the first thought comes to our mind is the, you know, the person who knows a lot of theological terms and has read a lot of Christian books and has a lot of clear gifts that they're using when they're volunteering and serving, but that's not what Paul says maturity is. Christian maturity, to be filled with the fullness of God, is to just be stunned by how much God loves you. That's the only way to really grow as a Christian, to be rooted in that love, to be grounded in that love to be overwhelmed with that incredible love that God loves us with. John Piper says, in light of this prayer, that God loves you in ways that are so spectacular, you need supernatural help to believe it and to feel it. Becoming a mature Christian is not something you can do on your own. That's why Paul prays for it here. Praise for the power to be able to do it. Praise for the ability to know how much Christ loves you and the result then is Christian maturity. So I gotta ask you, are you aware of your weakness today? Because that's the first step, to pray for power, that God would strengthen you. Are you aware of the need for Christ to rule in your heart? And are you aware of your emptiness, the areas that are lacking, the areas that need to be filled with the fullness of God? You see, a mature Christian is filled with God's fullness. 
A mature Christian knows what it means to be loved by God. And we need to pray for one another that we would have this knowledge and mature in this way. You see, with maturity come three characteristics that are so beautiful in the life of a, of a mature believer. The first one is contentment. The person is content because they're filled. They have God and they see God working in every area of their life and so they're not like so many in the world and so many of us where our heart is longing for the approval of certain people or the possession of certain things or, or power or influence or security, whatever it may be. The, the mature Christian knows that God loves them and there's this radical contentment the mature Christian also has incredible courage. Because they're rooted and grounded in God's love, they have this sense of security and stability in their life. They're not, they're not crushed when, when, when things aren't going their way. They're not, overly, they're not overly and wrongly enthusiastic when things seem to be going well. They are grounded in the love of God. And so their character... Is, is one that is courageous because no matter what the circumstances are, they know that God is with them and that God loves them. They also know that if they are called upon by God to step outside of their comfort zone, they know that when they take that step out of where they feel secure, they have courage to be able to do that. Why? Because they know that there's nowhere that they can step that's beyond the width and the breadth and the depth and the height. They know that there's nowhere where they can step where God has already got, been there and provided for them in love. And then lastly, the mature Christian is someone who has radical compassion because the mature Christian is overwhelmed by the love of God that even though they were dead in their sin and even though at times they persist in their sin and believe the lies of the enemy, that God has promised to love them with an everlasting love and because of that when when a mature Christian then looks at someone else who is struggling rather than being irritable or being impatient or being angry or being God help us self-righteous towards that other person no we look at other people through the lens of how God is looking at us and to be filled with the fullness of God means that we're content and means that we're courageous and means that we're compassionate because we have encountered the love of God that is death-defeating, chain-breaking, um, that, is, that is lost-finding, heart-changing, life-transforming, burden-bearing, curse-lifting, and sin-forgiving. This is the amazing love of God. Let's bow our heads together. Our Heavenly Father, I pray right now, as Paul prayed, that you would give us strength, that you would increase our capacity to understand the love of Christ in our lives and what that means. God, and that you would bring about maturity within our church. But God, I want to pray especially right now for the person who is doubting whether or not your love is deep enough to reach to them. To the person who feels like they're too far away from you. Lord, I pray that you would shower your love on them by your spirit in this moment, Lord God. Would you show them that you love them, 
that you've sent your son to die for them, that your gospel has the power to cleanse them from every sin in this moment. So God, I pray that you would give that person the courage to repent, the courage to confess their sin, the courage to believe that Jesus suffered and died for them on the cross. And God, I pray that as we draw closer to you, as we confess our weakness and our neediness, Lord, that you would be glorified in our midst, Lord, that this would happen, that Ephesians 2.20 would happen in our lives. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. To God be the glory. Let's get on our feet. Amen. This has been an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Brampton, Ontario. For more information about our church or to contact us, please visit harvestbrampton.ca.